O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day the first of days. Holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life. God blessed forever. Amen. It's a a wonderful old prayer, isn't it? Um, Keep thy day the first of all days. Amen. All right. Well, welcome back. We are in an ongoing study of 2 Timothy. And if you have your Bibles, and again, let me encourage you to bring them. I'm not going to be like um, Al Phillips and give you a dollar if you bring them. Um, But I will promise you there may be a few stars in your crown when you get to even if you show up with them uh, here in this class. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to go ahead and read through about the first 13 verses, and then we're going to come back and take a look at them in closer detail, and then we're going to move on to verses 14 and following. So if you're following along, 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust a faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we had died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. We said that the second epistle to Timothy was really Paul's last will and testament. Um, Paul is getting ready to die. He knows that. He's imprisoned in Rome. He's waiting execution for capital crimes against the emperor for having proclaimed that there was another king besides Caesar. And because the church's life was really on a knife's edge, he knew that Paul, Paul knew that he was going to have to pass on his ministry, um, the leadership of the church to others. And he had chosen this young man by the name of Timothy, who was a minister, who was the bishop, the early bishop in the church in Ephesus. And when I say bishop, that's not... A modern idea of a bishop, it just means somebody who is responsible for leading the church. What we would probably refer to as the pastor, the senior pastor of a church. That's what Timothy is. And Paul has chosen him as his heir to continue on his ministry. And he wants to prepare Timothy for what he's about to face. Paul knows that being a minister of the gospel is a great blessing, but it is also a tremendous responsibility. And so he does everything in his power to prepare Timothy. It's about managing expectations. 
That's one of the things that you learn very early on in any kind of a leadership position. The best thing you can do is manage people's expectations. Otherwise, they're sure to be disappointed, either in you or in what you're trying to do. And so Paul tries to manage Timothy's expectations by painting for him a very realistic picture of what it's going to mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and in particular to be a follower of Jesus Christ and lead other believers. And in the verses that we just read, Paul paints for Timothy a picture of the Christian life in terms of three things, three images. The first image is the image of a soldier. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, for no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, but his aim is always to please the one who enlisted him. This is Paul's way of reminding Timothy that the Christian life is a life of duty. It's not a life of pleasure. It's not a life of self-gratification. That your goal, your aim, is to serve your commanding officer. Now this is something that we sometimes forget about the Christian life. We oftentimes remember that Jesus Christ is our Savior. That He came into this world to deliver us from sin and bondage to death. But we must never forget that Jesus Christ is also, in addition to being our Savior, our Lord. And what is a Lord? A Lord is one who commands you, who commands your life. And so Paul is reminding Timothy that as a soldier, he has to live a life of duty in obedience to his commanding officer, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses a second image as well, the image of an athlete. He goes on in verse 5 to say, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Yes, the Christian life is that of duty, and responsibility, but it is also a life, in the, in the case of an athlete, of discipline. An athlete has to discipline himself or herself. There are certain things they have to say no to. I said last week you have to say no to jelly donuts, which is not always an easy thing to do around St. Philip's, let me tell you. But you also have to be willing to say yes to some things that other people do not want to say yes to. If you're going to be an athlete, if you're going to somehow subdue your body to train it, you have to get up sometimes early in the morning, sometimes before the sun is up or anybody else is up, and when the humidity is already out there, like a blanket. But Paul says the Christian life is a life of duty. It's also a life of discipline. Only the athlete who disciplines himself can hope to win the crown. And then finally, Paul uses the third image, and that is the image of a hard-working farmer. He says in verse 6, it is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say. I told you last week that I've known farmers over the course of my ministry. Uh, down in Beaufort, we had uh, a family that were involved in the tomato industry, tomato farming, and uh, they were some of the hardest-working people I've ever known. Just people who lived off the land and did their very best. And it was hard work, long hours, up early, to bed late. They were hard-working people. And Paul uses all of those images to describe the Christian life. If you think that by becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, everything's going to be easy from here on out, it's going to be a primrose path, Paul is trying to dis disabuse Timothy of that notion. Of course, Jesus had said the same thing earlier. He had said, anyone that wants to follow me must first do what? Take up his cross and follow me. 
deny himself, that's right, and take up his cross and follow me. Now, that doesn't mean much to us today, but let me tell you, because we, we talk about this in such a, uh, a trivial way. We talk about, oh, bearing your cross. Some people say, oh, my spouse, that's the cross I have to bear. <laughs> you know, you hear that sort of thing from time to time. But the reality is this, to take up your cross in the first century was an invitation to come and die. Everybody knew what that meant. I've said to you before that, that if you stand and you look at the, on James Island or on the connector and you, you take a look at the, the skyline of Charleston, it is still a skyline, unlike many cities in America, that is dominated by church steeples. And you see crosses on the top of those. And the cross for us is a symbol of victory. It's, it's a symbol of life and immortality. But you have to remember that in the first century, it was a symbol of death and the most degrading, humiliating death imaginable. Do you know that crucifixion was something that was reserved only for non-Romans? If you were a Roman, you could not be crucified. It was considered to be beneath the dignity of a Roman citizen. That's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul was not crucified. He was beheaded. Because you could never do that sort of thing to a Roman citizen. If you want to get a picture of what this was really like for a first century citizen, imagine being transported 2,000 years forward in time and standing and looking over a city whose skyline is dominated by buildings on the top of which were lethal syringes or electric chairs. Because that's what Charleston would look like to a first century Roman citizen. That's what it would look like. So Jesus was saying to his disciples, you want to be one of my followers? You've got to be willing to endure the cross. The cross. Now, as I said, the cross has been transformed to us. It's now symbolic of life and immortality. But that's only because Jesus Christ embraced it and turned it into something else. And so Paul is trying to say to Timothy, look, there is a crown at the end of all this. There is life. There is immortality. But before you get to that... There's difficulty. There is struggle. It's a life of duty. It's a life of discipline. It's a life of self-sacrifice. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that, there is what? There is life. Anyone who would seek to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will ever surely find it. Now, you can understand, that is so counter-cultural. It's even cultural in many ways to the way we Americans think. Because we are entitled to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. And Paul turns that on its head. And he says, no, the Christian life is not the pursuit of happiness. It is the pursuit of holiness. And those two things are not necessarily the same. Christian life is the pursuit of holiness, not the pursuit of happiness. Now, at this point, you might say to yourself, well, geez, Paul's not a particularly good salesman. I mean, my gosh, who wants to join up in that kind of an outfit? That's tough work. Well, what Paul goes on to do is he gives us five motivations. Five motivations for doing this. He doesn't just say you should do this. Now, in a sense... It is true that we should just do it. Christ is our captain. He is our commander. He is our Lord. And so we should be obedient, unquestioning fealty and allegiance. 
But on the other hand, Paul recognizes that Timothy's a young man, that Timothy's human, that he has weaknesses and frailties and fears. And so having laid out the heavy responsibility and burden of the Christian vocation, he then goes on to give five motivations. And these motivations are motivations that not only apply to Timothy, they apply to us as well. First thing Paul says after he finishes was saying that your life is the life of a good soldier, a life of duty. It's a life of the athlete. It's a life of discipline. It's a life of the hardworking farmer. He then goes on to say this, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. One reason why Paul says you should be willing to embrace this life of the cross, this life of suffering, this life of uncertainty, not uncertainty in an ultimate sense, but certainly uncertainty in the temporal sense, one of the reasons why you should be willing to embrace that kind of a life is because when you do, God will give you insight. He will give you insight. One of my favorite people in the Gospels is Mary of Bethany. You know the story of Mary and Martha? Um, toward the end of Jesus' life and ministry, after he had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany, which, by the way, took place just before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the significance of the raising of Lazarus from the dead is that it sets the stage for the Lord's triumphal entry into Jerusalem and for the final act of the great play. That, that, that's what it does. Because you'll recall that a lot of people had deserted Jesus by the time you get to that point in the gospel narrative. The huge crowds that have been 5,000 up there in Galilee have all of a sudden disappeared. And one of the reasons they've disappeared is because as Jesus continues to unpack what the scriptures mean and what his true identity is, people begin to get offended. On one occasion, for instance, Jesus said, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the people said, this is a hard saying. Who can accept it? And we're told that many of his disciples turned back and followed him no more. So that by the time Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and he's making himself available to the people of that city, making his final journey there, those huge crowds that have been in excess of 5,000 people have now dwindled down to about 120. And yet what's interesting is that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week, there was pandemonium. I mean, there were crowds of people thronging, tearing the palm branches from the trees, taking off their cloaks and laying them in front of him and shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now the question is, what accounts for that radical change? The crowds disappear, now all of a sudden they're back. Why are they back? I'll tell you why they're back. They're back because just days before, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and it had been a public miracle. Jesus, we know of, raised at least three people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the synagogue ruler's daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. And what is interesting is that each one of those stories gets more exciting and more amazing than the one before. In the case of Jairus' daughter, the girl had only died. When Jesus arrived, the body probably wasn't even cold. In the case of the widow of Nain's son, what? Well, the funeral cortege was making its way out of the city toward the burial site. But in the case of Lazarus, what? 
He'd been in the tomb for days to such a degree that Martha said, the body is starting to decompose. The old King James says, he stinketh. <laughs> so when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and we're told that a great number of people had come out from Jerusalem to console the sisters in the loss of their brothers, this was a public event, and the word had spread back to Jerusalem, and when Jesus rode into the city, there was pandemonium. But even at that late point, did you ever notice that the disciples still didn't understand what he was about? They still didn't get it. They thought that he was coming in there to be what? Lifted up upon a throne, not lifted up upon a cross. Only one person that we know of from the Gospels actually had insight enough to know exactly what Jesus was going to do. And that was Mary of Bethany. We're told that she took some costly perfume or ointment and she broke the jar and she poured it on Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair. And the disciples objected, and they said, listen, this was expensive. Well, what's the most expensive perfume out there, ladies? I don't know what it is today, you know, but whatever it is, a costly perfume. And they said, this could have been sold and given to the poor, and Jesus said, no, she has done a beautiful thing. She has anointed me in anticipation and preparation of my burial. And this is going to be a remembrance for all of time. She knew what Jesus was going to do when Peter and James and John and all the rest did not. Why? Anybody know why? What? Every time you encounter Mary of Bethany in the scriptures, and you encounter her three times, she's always in exactly the same posture. She's at Jesus' feet. When Jesus showed up at the house and Mary and Martha were there and Martha was busy preparing the meal, where was Martha? At the Lord's feet. Mary. And what did Martha say? Tell my sister to get in here and lend a hand. And Jesus said, no, she has chosen what? The better way. It's not that she, Martha had chosen the wrong way. It's that Mary had chosen the better way. She was at the Lord's feet. Second time we encounter is when? The death of Lazarus. And we're told that Martha came out and met the Lord on the road. I don't know how you picture it, but Martha was a ramrod around that house. And when she showed up, I always imagine her standing there confronting Jesus with her hands on her hips. If you had been here, if you had come when I told you to come, she's letting him have it. But Mary comes out, and we're told she falls at the Lord's feet. And the third time we encounter her is after the resurrection of Lazarus. And where is Mary? At the Lord's feet wiping them with her hair. She spent time with the Lord. She submitted to the Lord's authority, and the result was that she gained an insight into his ministry that nobody else had. If you want to understand what God is doing in life, what God is doing in history, what God wants to do for your life, the only way you're ever going to find out is if you are spending time at the Lord's feet. That's how it happens, my friends, at the Lord's feet. 
St. Anselm had a wonderful expression, fetus quarens intellectum. It means faith seeking understanding. Anselm once said, I believe that I may understand. Now that's the exact opposite of people who have grown up in a post-enlightenment culture. We say, if I can understand it, I will believe it. But it's the exact opposite in the Christian life. You believe, you place your faith in the hope that you may understand. And when I say faith, I don't mean blind faith. I don't mean credulity. We're not expected to believe without evidence. In the Christian life, you will get evidence. You'll never get proof. But I want to tell you something. You never get proof in any aspect of life. There's only one discipline where you get a proof. You know what that is? Mathematics. That's the only thing where you get a proof. Everything else, you may get evidence, and evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, but you're never going to get proof. You do not have proof that your spouse loves you. You may have overwhelming evidence. This is one of the reasons why I think Jesus got frustrated with Thomas. It wasn't that Thomas demanded evidence in order to believe. Unless I could take my hand and put it in the nail prints, unless I could take my hand and put it in his side, I will not believe. That wasn't the problem. The problem was Thomas had been with Jesus for three years. And he had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He had seen Jesus calm the waves. He had seen Jesus walk on the water. He had seen Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And then he says, I need more? How much more evidence could you possibly require? That's why Jesus was upset with Thomas. Not because he required evidence in order to believe, but because he had been given ample evidence and it was still not enough. That's not doubt, my friends. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's unbelief. And that's what Jesus was condemning. That's what he was condemning. So there's plenty of evidence for the Christian faith, but on the basis of that evidence, are we willing to place our trust, because that's really what the word faith means, pistis means trust, are we willing to place our trust in Christ? Because when we do, all of a sudden, what happens? You begin to understand. He begins to speak to you. He begins to reveal things to you that are hidden from other people. You gain an insight. And so that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. He said, yes, you're going to be a soldier of Christ. And yes, this is a hard life. It's the work of the farmer who is always trying to get a harvest out of things. It is the work of the athlete who has to discipline and say no to some things and yes to other things. But when you submit to this life, all of a sudden God gives you insight into what life is really all about. So that's the first motivation. Second motivation is this. He says, remember, verse 8, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Basically, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, Timothy, i got one question for you. Do you believe that the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week? When I was the rector at St. Helena's in Beaufort, God gave us a vision to start a school down there, a classical Christian school. Um, education, of course, is always forefront in the minds of people, even people who don't have children. We recognize that an educated society is a society that will do great things. And we recognized that we needed a particular kind of school down there, one that was academically rigorous. 
because God is the fountain of all knowledge and wisdom, but one that was also authentically Christian, overtly Christian and unashamedly Christian. And so I put that vision before the congregation, and let me tell you, did I get pushback initially. My wife can tell you all about it. See all these gray hairs that I have? I got half of those when I was at St. Helena's. I got the other half with this lawsuit here since I've been here. But at any rate, we decided to start this. And I remember sitting in a vestry meeting and going around the table and, and listening. I, I always like to hear what everybody has to say because they're going to say it one way or the other. I, I used to always remind people, you see this room? This is the parking lot. You know what I mean by that, don't you? Because there's always the meeting in the room. And then it breaks up. And then there's the other meeting out there in the parking lot where they really say what I said, this is the parking lot. And so we're going around and everybody's talking about this. Schools are expensive. You'll bleed the parish white. We can't afford to do this. There's no enthusiasm. We've got a lot of older people in our congregation. Their kids are already grown. We can't. And they gave me all these reasons why we couldn't do it. And I listened to them all. And at the end, I asked a simple question. I said, here's my question. Do you believe the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week? That's the only question I want answered right now. Did the man come out of the tomb on the first day of the week or not? And I just kind of sat there and I said, we're going to go around the room and I want to know from every person who believes the man came out of the tomb on the first day. And went the whole way around and it was unanimous. The man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week. I said, well, if the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week, then what is impossible? If Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, is anything impossible? Well, is it? No. And that's what Paul was saying to Timothy. This is a difficult life. It's a hard life. But remember, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Nothing is impossible for him who believes. And the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is available to you. How did Paul put it on another occasion? Jesus Christ, having been raised from the dead, will also give life to your mortal bodies. So that's the second incentive. Remember that God's going to get the last word. There may be battles to be fought, but we already know who won the war, don't we? That's a good message for us in these days of uncertainty here at St. Philip's. We don't know what the future holds, but we know who holds the future. We may lose the battle, but my friends, the war has already been won. And when all is said and done, Christ having been raised from the dead, all things are possible. Third thing is this, verses 8 and 9. This is the third incentive. Paul says, remember that the word of God is not bound. He says, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul was bound between two Praetorian guards, the shock troops of the Roman Empire. But, he says, the word of God is not bound. Boy, is that an encouragement. Keep your fingers there in 2 Timothy and turn, if you will, to Isaiah, chapter 55, for just a minute. Beginning at verse 10, this is what the prophet Isaiah says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. 
It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My word will not come back void or empty. Somebody once asked me, well, what is your strategy for building the church? When I, when I was uh, in my last parish, I had one lady who it seemed every month brought in a new book for me to read. <laughs> you know, I had a stack of books, and I would take them and put them in the closet so that when they came back for them and they wanted their book, they weren't lost or anything like that. But I just got to tell you, with the preaching and the teaching and all the other things, giving me one more thing to write, just, I couldn't do it. And it was always, she said, you need to read this book. You need, this is going to change the church. And so I had, you know, how people grow and sticky church and simple church and you name it, all these things that I was supposed to read. And it was going to change the church and everything was going to be great. And nobody had the time to read all those books except for her. <laughs> and one day she came in with another book and I just said, Diane, stop, stop. I said, sit down. I said, I only know how to do one thing, and that's the preaching to teach. I said, I, I just got to tell you, I'm, this may sound simplistic to you, not just simple, but simplistic to you, but I believe that the thing that makes the church grow is the Word of God. And I don't believe that you have to do a whole lot of defending. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, defend the Bible? That's like defending a lion. Nobody has to defend a lion. The only thing you need to do is open the gate and let him out. And I'm a firm believer that that is what grows the church. Because the word of the Lord never comes back void or empty. So you're going to discover, during my time with you, however long that time may be, I'm going to open the cage and let the lion out. That's my job. You may think you're coming here to hear Jeff Miller. My wife will tell you, it ain't worth it. You're coming to hear the word of the Lord, because that's life, and it never comes back void or empty. Now, you may not see the fruit of it right now, but in eternity you will. Folks, let me tell you, no matter what you do in life, no matter how successful you are in life, it will not last. When you die, you're going to leave it all behind. There's only one work that you will ever do on this earth that will last for all eternity, and that is to lead another person into fellowship, into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that person will live for eternity because the word of the Lord never returns empty. So Paul was saying to Timothy, be encouraged. If you submit to this, God's going to give you insight. You'll begin to understand things that other people don't. Be of good courage because God has already won the battle. Christ has been raised from the dead. Be of good courage because the word of the Lord never comes back void or empty. Fourth incentive is this. He says, we suffer for a purpose. Therefore, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Let me tell you something. Suffering is part and parcel of the human life. Nobody escapes it. Sooner or later, tragedy, difficulty, disappointment are going to befall you and your family. 
It's just part of what it means to be human, to live in a broken world. But while we all suffer, here's the difference. The Christian suffers for a purpose. Did you hear that? We all suffer, but the Christian suffers for a purpose. Romans 8.28, For we know that in all things God works together for the good of those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. So we all suffer, but the Christian suffers for a purpose. And one of the purposes is for the sake of others. Isn't that what Jesus did for us on the cross? What, what does Paul say in Philippians? Who though he was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to. I, I love that expression. Grasp, held on to. You know, we live in a society where we are willing to give up something good provided that something better is coming on. So I'm willing to give up my iPhone 4. <laughs> if somebody gives me an iPhone 10, isn't that the way it is? I'm willing to give up an old car if somebody's going to give me a new car. Some people are willing to give up the old spouse if they think they can get a new spouse. It's unfortunate, but it's the way it is. That's the world in which we live, isn't it? We're always looking for something better to come on the scene. We're always looking for something new. But what's so amazing about Jesus Christ is that he had the very best. He was in very nature God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he let it go. And he made himself nothing. And he took the form of a servant. The Greek is doulos. It means bondservant. It means a slave. And became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him that name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He suffered for a purpose, and that purpose was for your salvation and for mine. And if we are going to be Christians, and the word means little Christ, that means that we are called to suffer for others as he suffered for them. You realize that's how Charleston got started. That's how this nation got started. People fled religious persecution and came to this place leaving behind everything that was comfortable and familiar to them to come here and to start a new life for the sake of their children and their grandchildren and their great-great-grandchildren and generations yet unborn. That's what we're called to do. The Christian life is not a life of ease. Bishop Lawrence likes to say, you have not signed up for a cruise ship. You've signed up for a battleship. So Paul says that to Timothy. He says, remember that you suffer, but you suffer for a good purpose, for the sake of others, that they may come to know Jesus Christ who suffered for you. Now all of that is very positive encouragement. But Paul does come to the end, and he does remind us that there is a negative side of this. And that is, he says, for if we disown him, he will disown us. We don't like to think of that, but it's true. Look at verse 11. The saying is if we have died with him, we will also live with him. You take up the cross, you'll be resurrected. If we endure, discipline your body, 
Be faithful like the athlete. You will reign with him. You'll receive the crown. Isn't that what Paul says to Timothy? He said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and there is now stored up for me the crown of life which God has prepared for me. But, second part of verse 12, if we deny him, he also will deny us. We don't like to think of that, but it's true. And it's not just Paul saying that. Jesus himself said it. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, Jesus said, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. That is, share the faith. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Back in the second century, during the intense persecutions that took place during the reign of the Emperor Diocletian, there was an early bishop of the church who was being led to his martyrdom. His name was Polycarp. And he had a lot of acolytes, a lot of followers, disciples. A lot of them were much younger than he was, and they were begging him, begging him to deny the faith. All he had to do was renounce Christ and he would live. That's all he had to do. Just, 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 you don't have to believe it in your heart, they were saying. Just, just say it with your lips. Because <laughs> God looks on the heart anyway. Save yourself. And this was Polycarp's response. Eighty and six years have I served Christ. Nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deigning me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good soldier, my friends. That's the hard-working farmer. That's the athlete who runs the race to the end and receives the crown of life. The crown of life. How about you? Is that where you are? This Christian life is not an easy thing. I said to the Bible study on Wednesday, I think part of the problem that we face in America today is that we become affluent, even maybe to the point of decadence. I mean, really, if you think about it, we are so similar to ancient Rome. We live in the lap of luxury. I, I see people, and if you're one of them, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm probably going to do it anyway, but, uh, you know, fools rush in. I see people pushing baby carriages with dogs along the street in Charleston. And there's just something about that that's just not... Right. I got it. I don't. I, there's just something that's just not right about that. 
When we live in a culture where babies and children, particularly the unborn, are not regarded as of any consequence whatsoever, sometimes more of an inconvenience than anything else, and yet here we are. And I think part of the problem is, this is what um, one of my favorite quotes um, by one of the English Puritans, American Puritans actually, started off in England, came to America, Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather once said, the thing about Christianity is wherever it goes, it leaves people better than they were before. He says, wherever Christianity has gone throughout the world, it has always bred affluence, and then the daughter devours the mother. The affluence devours the Christianity. We have been inoculated with a weak form of Christianity, and we have grown immune to the real thing. And we have an uncanny ability to compartmentalize our lives. There's church over here. Here's Christianity over here. Here's our politics over here. Here's our family life over here. Here's our business life over here. And we don't view the whole of life through the lens of the cross. Paul was telling Timothy that's what it means to be a Christian. Everything, all of life, the air you breathe, is the life of Jesus Christ, crucified, dead, and raised again, in the flesh and in you. May God grant us the grace in these difficult times. I, I don't know. Let me just speak to those of you who are members of St. Philip's. I don't know what's going to happen with these buildings. Some of you are absolutely confident we're not going to lose anything. I wish I were that confident. I don't know. But even if we don't, sitting in a vestry meeting not long ago, somebody turned and said, I'm not going to point her out, but I thought it was a wonderful quotation. She said, maybe this is our fire. You know this building's burned twice before? Did you know that? Back in the 18th century, back in 1835, rebuilt in grand style in 1838. And when they looked at the challenges before them, and I love the, the, the painting, the burning of St. Philip's, it shows Bishop Gadsden feigning in the front. Because <laughs> I'm sure he thought, oh, my life's labor gone up in flames. Oh, my gosh, what does this mean? But the people of that generation knew that the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week, and the word of the Lord never comes back void, and they were called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ, to be hardworking farmers, to discipline themselves, and they rebuilt, and they started again, and ever since that, this magnificent building has towered over this city as a physical and as a spiritual lighthouse. And if God calls us to move again, then let me tell you something that simply means that he is going to use us to build something even more glorious still. Do you believe it? How many of you believe the man came out of the tomb on the first day of the week? Then nothing is impossible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace, for your mercy. This Christian life is not easy, but it is a grace. It is an undeserved, unearned favor. It's an opportunity to live for the sake of him who died and rose again for us. It is an opportunity for us to live in such a way that we can make a difference. Not just for a time, not just for a season but for eternity. 
Grant us the grace to shout the good news from the hilltops, from the rooftops. Grant us the grace to be good soldiers, disciplined athletes, and hard-working farmers. For the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.